today's scripture reading is from Romans 6, 11 through 14. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and that your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, there are a few texts in your Bible that have the kind of clarity and power like we have condensed for us in these few verses. The full Bible is filled with great truths, but there are some sections where the level of heat and light and the possibility is intensified. And such is the text that's in front of us today. So would would you help me to make it plain? Would you help our people to understand it? Would you empower their understanding and would you bring people into the kingdom today, people who are not Christians, that today they would become Christians and those who are Christians that they would see the beauty of what is offered to us in the union and the freedom that we have in your son. So help us today, Lord. This is a very important passage. I feel the weight of it and I pray you would um, be our teacher by your Holy Spirit today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and go to Romans 6, verses 11 to 14, our passage that we're going to be studying today. One of the reasons that I love the sixth chapter of the book of Romans is because of its hope and because of its power. Within Romans chapter 6 are incredible summary statements about what it means for a follower of Jesus, to be in Christ. And then there are sweeping implications of that reality. One of the reasons that I love Romans chapter 6 is because it shows us the way in which the gospel of what it means to be in Christ, to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, how this really works. And unfortunately, for many believers in Jesus, that's where the disconnect actually happens. They, They don't know that the gospel works. They, they don't experience the reality of how it works. And because of that, they are robbed of two things. They are robbed of joy and they are robbed of freedom. They're, they're robbed of joy because they understand the gospel. They understand that Jesus died for my sins, that I'm dead in Christ. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ. They understand that conceptually, but because it doesn't actually work, they don't know what it means to say he's alive and I'm alive. And they have, they have lower levels of joy than what they should have. They come to church, they sing, they see other people who just seem to be so happy. And for them, the reality is that there's a disconnect because the defeated life that they live most days of the week doesn't seem to fit with the gospel that we talk about on the Lord's Day. And so they are robbed of joy. So when I approach Romans 6, I long and I hope for and have prayed for that you would experience a new level of joy and satisfaction because of what you experience as you apply this text. 
The test isn't what happens while we're together. The test is what happens during the week. So they're robbed of joy. They're also robbed of freedom. And, and that's the other tragedy in that there are things in this passage that help us to deal with individual sin issues so that the vision is that you could actually look back on your life and realize that there's a particular sin issue in my life and it's less and less and less evident in my life. It less is less controlling in my life. And I'm actually finding levels of freedom that I used to be like this and now I'm like that. And that's because of the gospel. And so they're experiencing freedom. But the problem is, is that many followers of Jesus don't know what it's like to really be happy and they don't know what it's like to really be free. And it's a tragedy. There's nothing more discouraging in the world than an unhappy, in-bondage Christian. So what we're going to do today is try and help one another understand what's in this passage. So what I want you to do is just, as we begin, I want this text to apply to a particular sin issue in your life. And so what I want you to do is I want you to think with me about a particular sin that you would love to be free from. And if you're like, I I can't think of one. How about pride? (laughs) Start there, okay? So, So hopefully you've got one sin at least that you can think of. Think of how much pain that sin has created for you and others around you. Think how many tears that you have shed how much guilt you have felt because of that one issue in your life. What would it be like? What would it be like if that one sin issue were no longer a problem? If it was there and it was real and it was tempting, but you were able to go, no, I'm not doing that because I'm dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. What would it look like? What would it look like? How would your worship be different? How would you sing differently? How would you read the Bible differently? If you knew deep within your soul, straight up, I am different today because of an encounter with Jesus through his word, and I am freer today than what I was last week, six months, a year, 10 years, 30 years. So my prayer today is that you will be helped to see, to see, oh, that God would help us to see some new things about grace and to see some new things about ourselves and and then how to defeat sin i hope that this next week for you is a new battle with new levels of victory and that as you wage the warfare to be righteous that it will be a more informed battle so last week we looked at verses 1 to 11 and we talked about the concept of beauty. I I suggested to you that there is nothing more beautiful in all the earth than a God-glorifying, sin-defeating, Christ-following Christian. That God is supremely glorified when believers are beautified because of their commitment to Jesus. Today, we're going to look at what does it mean to be an instrument of righteousness from verses 11 to 14 And there are three things that are in this text that I want to lay before you, and I hope that they will be of help to you in becoming the kind of person who is a passionate follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, I'm thrilled that you're here. What I'm about to share with you is what Christianity does practically, and if there's something within you that longs to be free, then 
my invitation to you today would be you need to come to Christ. That's where you start. And that's where freedom begins. So today we're going to look at three things. First, what it means to connect thinking and doing, how those two things have to connect. Secondly, that we have to think biblically, that we have to consider some things to be true. And third, that we have to take right actions. So verse 11, here's the first thing, and that is you must connect thinking and doing. There's three words that we need to look at. The words are, so you also. Those are the three words. This entire first point is just on those three words. And the reason that that's important is because there's a shift that's happening in this book. For five chapters, Paul has talked about the reality of who Christ is and what he has done. And in verse 10 of chapter 6, we see what Christ did. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So it's been about Christ, about being baptized in him, about our union with him. Verse 9 of chapter 6 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die die again. Death no longer has any dominion over him. So it's about Christ. Christ and being baptized in him, about being buried with him, about being united with him, about living with him. It's all about union with Christ. It means that God counts what happened to Christ as having counted to those who are in Christ. That when he died, we die. When he rose, we rose. When he lives, we live. It's about him, him, him. And now there's a shift. This is very, very practical. Paul is moving from statements about who and what Jesus is to commands about what we are to do, what I am to do. And that's why the word you is really important in the text. It's emphatic, meaning it doesn't have to be there. Uh, Paul could say you must with just a Greek form of the verb. It would be implied, but he adds the specific word you to emphasize you personally. So what he's doing is taking ethereal, big picture, union with Christ concepts, and he's driving it down towards practical living, specifically practical living applied to us individually. So when I read Romans six eleven, I should read it like this. So you, Mark, you put your name in there. So you, Mark, also must consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's a personal connection that Mark Brogup has because of my relationship with Jesus. There's a personal connection to what God did in and through Christ to what he has done in me because of Christ. So there's a, a personal connection. And that personal connection is going to express itself in commands. This union with Christ is now moving into imperatives, and there's a number of them. Take your finger, and let's use it to study the Bible, all right? So, commands, there's at least four of them. Put your finger on them, just so that I know you're with me, and so the person next to you knows you're not texting, all right? So here we go. (laughs) I see you, by the way, when you do it, so just so you know. God does too, so... Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign. There's a command. Don't let sin reign. Verse 11, we forgot that one. You must also consider, that's an imperative. Consider reign, that's an imperative. Um, To make you obey their passions. Do not present, there's another one. So what you're not to do, don't present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God. Those, Those are all imperatives. 
Imperative, imperative, imperative. This is a significant shift because all of Romans, five previous chapters and part of chapter 6, was filled with indicatives, statements about who we are. And Paul now is going to help us to see a more complete picture of the pathway of freedom. And what does that look like? Freedom in the Bible comes by understanding two key ideas. One, who I am called to be in Christ. And secondly, what I am called to do in Christ. And in order to pursue a walk of righteousness and a life of freedom, you have to understand both. You have to have indicatives, statements about who you are, and imperatives, things that you're called to do. If you don't have both of them, you can't do the spiritual walk. You need like two legs. You need both imperatives and indicatives in order to grow. So think of it this way. An indicative is a statement about who you are or a statement of being. It's union with Christ, baptized with him, buried with him, raised with him. All of these statements, these realities of who and what we are. And then from there it moves and Paul takes a movement to move towards imperatives or commands, what we are called to do. And when you do what you are called to be or you respond to what the Bible says about you and you find the beautiful reality of tangible obedience, it then affirms the indicative. Oh, yes, it's true. This is what it means to be united in Christ. It's not just some theoretical idea, but it's a tangible reality. This idea actually affects how I live. And in so doing, you become or you be rather who you are becoming. When it comes to spiritual growth, you need both in order to grow. Indicatives is where it all begins because there are truths that must be believed. There are things that are true that you have to believe, but belief is not the only thing that it means to be a Christian or to find freedom. Beliefs must then be acted upon. So imperatives are connected to indicatives and indicatives are connected to imperatives. And what is sanctification? The process of becoming godly is the progressional growth of godliness over time in a macro sort of sense. It goes up. And to the right, but in a micro sense, it's this perpetual cycle of embracing indicatives and imperatives and indicatives and imperatives. And so your whole life is spent focusing on two things. What does the Bible say about me and what am I called to do? And every single day, your call to fight sin is who am I in Christ? What is my identity in him? And therefore, how should I then live? It's not complicated, but it is war. You got to think right and then you got to do what's right. Now, I would suggest to you that every person in this room tends towards one or the other. There are people who are more imperative in their understanding of Christianity. You're here and you're just like, what do we need to do, right? Tell me something to do. I want to do something. And, and doing is, is, is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But you go to your small group and you just want to know, what do we need to do? Let's hold each other accountable. Let's get each other's grill. Let's yell at each other. Be godly! That's what you want to tell people to do. And, and you think, you just got, all I need is, I just need more stuff. And that you just bent that way. And you probably need to think more about the indicatives. Who are you in Christ? Because if you simply try and pursue things and do things without the indicatives, you'll end up, frankly, being a legalist. You'll, you'll, you'll tell your children, stop it, stop doing it. And, and you won't ever connect them to the indicatives in terms of why. That'll work till they're about 10, maybe 8. 
maybe six. It works a little ways, but eventually you have to connect the imperatives with the indicatives. You have to help them understand the why behind the what. You have to help them understand their position in Christ and why acting this way doesn't fit with who and what they really are in Christ. Otherwise, you'll just have kids who are frustrated and think life's just all about a bunch of rules. And then there's other people who you're not really into the do thing. I mean, you are, but maybe you grew up in a do church, like it was the first do church of Carmel or something like that, and, and you kind of came out of that. And so you're, you're, you live in the indicatives. You want to just talk about grace and where we are in Christ, what our freedom is and what our position is, and that's wonderful. The problem is if you never connect your indicatives to your imperatives, you'll result in laissez-faire Christianity and a bit of license. It'll get you in trouble because you'll think so much about heavenly thoughts when the reality is there's some things you have to do. You need both. That's the point. Who you are in Christ, indicatives and imperatives, commands that we need to follow. Let me show you this in another section in Scripture. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this, and this is his righteousness in Christ, or am already made perfect, but I press on, notice this, to make it my own. So he's going to grab a hold of it because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see it? There's the indicative imperative. I'm going to grab a hold of it because I've been grabbed a hold of it. I'm going to grab a hold of this because this is how Christ has grabbed hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the idea is you have to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of you. Are you laying hold? Absolutely. But in your laying hold of it, it's not that you laid hold of it on your own. And yet, the best way I can illustrate this, I'm not even sure it's adequate, I think it's as close as I can get, is one of the um, sad things about um, having children that are getting older and older and older is that the, the storm at the door when I come home, there's just one now running saying, Daddy, right? Twins and Jeremiah are like, what's up? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take what's up. That's fine. That's good. But Savannah's the only one, and pretty soon she probably won't do that anymore. It'll just be the dog, you know, so... And, <laughs> And she knows she's heard her days are numbered. So, uh, so I come home, Savannah, she used to, and when she's little, it's even, even uh, more intense because she, daddy, daddy, run. And then as she would run, she would jump into my arms, right? And so I'd get down like this and she'd come into this zone, like my arms, the zone of my arms. And she'd get in and she'd grab on my neck. She'd say, I got you, daddy, I got you. And what she never understood is way before her little arms ever got her arms around my neck, my big old arms got around her. And even if she got in and she was like, oh no, I'm not going to hug you. She's going to hug me now because I have laid hold of her and she, is laying hold of me and the point from a spiritual standpoint is this that jesus laid hold of you and in his laying hold of you you are also to lay hold of him so spiritual growth involves two perspectives one i'm clinging to jesus and then also but he's clinging to me he laid hold of me and so i am laying hold of him so that then leads me to a question When it comes to spiritual growth, when it comes to how you think of growing spiritually, do you need to work more on the indicative side of the equation? Who you are in Christ? What does the Bible say about me in terms of the reality of who I am? Or do you need to work more on the imperative side of the equation? Or maybe specifically there are there are sins in your life that you'd like to have them control you less 
And in some cases, you need to wield the sword of imperatives. I need to stop doing this and do this and don't do that and do this. I need accountability. I need to memorize the scripture. And all those things are, are, are wonderful and great unless you don't really understand how to wield the sword of the indicative, who you are in Christ. As a small group leader, does your group need to think more about indicatives or imperatives? Do, do you need more talking about what tangible action steps do we need to do or do you need to think more about who we are and our identity in christ you you may need in the indicative realm to spend some time reading great literature meditating on the work of christ basking in the sunshine of truth and when you have filled your mind with great truths about who and what god is you'll be surprised how much easier it is to fight sin in the world Others of you, you've got it in terms of great understanding of who and what God is, but you've got to do things really practically like, like you've got to just decide, I'm not going to go to that place anymore. Or I've got to find some new friends. Or i just got to break up with him. Or I need to turn the TV off. Or I need to install accountability software on my computer or i got to find a creative plan to deal with free time in my life so what you need to think about with me is this when it comes to this indicative imperative piece which of these two key elements of progressive sanctification need to be a part of your life and in specific sins do you need an imperative issue do you have an imperative issue or do we have an indicative issue do you really understand who and what you are in christ or do you really need to take just some specific actions we need to wage our warfare and we wage it on the indicative front and on the imperative front on who we are and also what god calls us to do so we're in romans 6 and we've just covered now three words <laughs> So let's move on to point two and see if we can pick up the pace a little bit. So you also must, this is the next word is really important, consider. The the, the text turns on the word consider because it's the link between Paul's movement from indicatives and union with Christ to you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So there is this connection. You've got to do something in light of this reality. In Romans 6, all the way up to verse 10, it's filled with definitive statements about who we are in Christ. And what you need to know is that you can know all of the truths of Romans 5 and Romans 6. You can know them, but it doesn't mean that it's going to work practically. There are things that you need to consider. There are things that you need to think about. There's decisions that you need to make about what is true and what is not true. You need to consider what is real and what you really believe. The word consider is a Greek word that's used 40 times in the New Testament. It's used 19 times in the book of Romans. It's used in Romans 4 and verse 3 to describe the way in which Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. That word counted, that's the same word. If you're a numbers guy, if you're a numbers girl, if you you like accounting, if you um, love spreadsheets and doing math, 
God bless you. This is your word. This is your word. This is like, yes, count, consider, add it up. This is your word. I'm going to spiritualize your passion for doing math. Here it comes. You ready? This word essentially means to calculate. It can be used to refer to taking something into account, like accounting. It can be used for crediting something to somebody. Or it can be used for considering something to be the case. The metaphor is bookkeeping. It's accounting. The idea is that there's an account. Think of it like your checking account, your savings account. And what is in that account is real. That's reality. doesn't matter what you think you have what you hope you have, or what your handwritten checkbook says, that's not real. What's real is what's in the bank. That's the point. If you think you have $1,000 in your checking account, but you only have $500 in your checking account, the bank is not going to be sympathetic if you start overdrafting your account. If you go in, well, I believe that I have $1,000 in my account. They go, well, you don't. But I believe it to be true. Well, you don't. The fact of the matter is the $500 is what is real and there needs to be a connection between what is real in the bank and how you live. I know a dad who uh, sent his daughter off to college and uh, gave her a debit card, set up an account, and uh, a couple months later kept getting these bank statements. She was continually overdrafting her account. So he went down for dinner and said, sweetie, we got to talk about this. Your, your, your checking account is continually um, in the negative, and there's all kinds of fees that connected with it. Said, so tell me, how is this happening? She said, I don't know. I said, well, how are you getting money? She said, oh, I get, take that card, and I go to the ATM machine, and I get money out. He's like, okay. And he goes, now you know that that card and the money they're getting is connected to your checking account, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, he forgot to tell her that doesn't, she thought she found the money tree, right? You just go and get the money out. And, and the reality is that the, the money is real and her life needed to be connected to what is in fact really in the account. You can think of it this way. This word means do the math. It means add up the numbers to reveal what should be or is, in fact, real. How does this relate to spiritual things? Well, it means this, that since Christ died to sin, believers should understand that in their account, that which is real is Christ's victory over death, the grave, and its power. That is real. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. That is real. It is tangible. It is real. And considering means that you would take your life and you would do the math about that reality. That you would live your life such that that reality of dead to sin and alive to Christ actually works out in how you live every single day. It means that you understand basic concepts about the cross and forgiveness and what Christ has done. That you think about it, you read about it, you meditate on these realities, and you consider that this is real. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is the reality, and I live in light of it. doesn't matter how I feel. doesn't matter what I think. doesn't matter. It, this is the reality, and I live my life in light of it. That's what the word consider means. 
the right actions in your life are never going to be produced unless you start with thinking right. That is reality. Let me illustrate it maybe this way. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever run out of gas? And driving along and you're like, oh no. And then you realize, oh yeah, that's what that little gauge is for, right? So about a month or so ago, one of my sons, he ran out of gas. He's going to take my car. I said, hey, you can take my car, but just be sure you realize that it's low. You got to fill it up on the way. He said, yeah, I got it. I got it. It's a good go. Then they get a phone call. Dad, I ran out of gas. And I was like, ah, where are you? He says, I'm on the off ramp from um, US 31 going to Meridian. You know this off ramp right now? It's like this wide, right? <laughs> I said, don't get out of your car. Stay there. I'm going to come and bring you a gas can. So I, I, I pulled up right behind him and I was like, oh man, it's really tight and really close. And uh, then after I started to get out of my car, a police officer gratefully pulled up behind me, uh, started to run his flashers. He got out to see what was wrong. He said, hey, what's, what's wrong? And I said, my son, he, uh, yeah, he, he ran out of gas. And the police officer said, doesn't he know what E means? <laughs> I said, no, he knows what E means. He just, uh, he goes, I don't know, I got teenage boys too, it's fine. Just hurry up. I'm like, all right, so but the, what is he saying? What is he saying? It doesn't matter if my son had called and said to me, Dad, I, I don't feel like I'm out of gas. <laughs> or, Dad, I don't want to be out of gas. Or, Dad, in the metaphysical world of reality, does gas really matter? Right? None of that matters. The fact of the matter is you're out of gas. That is the reality. The question is whether or not your behavior and your actions are going to reflect what is in fact real and true. That's what the word consider means. But for you and for me, for those who are followers of Jesus, it means we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We are dead to sin and alive. We are dead to sin and alive to God. But there are so many followers of Jesus who don't believe that is true. They don't. They think sin reigns. And they can't do anything different. They don't believe that they're dead to sin. They aren't doing the math. Do the math. They're living like poor paupers when they are wealthy in their bank account with Christ. They are living in the shadow of what could be. So joy is gone and freedom is gone. And the fact of the matter is they are living in a devil-induced stupor, thinking somehow that they are somehow not dead to sin and they're not alive to God. When Paul says, consider it, consider, consider, do the math. Thinking biblically means that we understand and our eyes are open to what is in fact true. What's true, what's true is I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God. you got to think biblically. Third, you must take the right actions. So now we arrive at the things that we must do. Bless you. Verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 to 14 so you can... Understand where we are. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now let me give you an overview of what's happening here because there's a metaphor embedded in these verses that you need to understand. And when I studied this and discovered this, it was incredibly helpful. 
What Paul is describing here is a great conflict, a conflict that's happening. And the conflict looks like this. First, there is a reign or a controlling reality that is being contested. Notice that verse 12 says, Do not let sin reign. So what Paul is talking about here is the issue of reigning. What's going to control you? What's going to rule you? What's going to reign over you? And what he's saying is, don't let sin reign. There's something that wants control. So this text is about practical control. Don't let sin have it. That's the point. Secondly, there is a challenger or a rebel that wants control. Do not let sin, therefore, reign. So the idea is that there is a rebel, and the rebel is sin, And that rebel wants control of your life. He's an insurrectionist. He wants to take control over you. And it is that Paul says, do not let sin reign. So he wants to reign, which means he isn't reigning. God is reigning. Christ is reigning. The cross is reigning. And what he's saying is, do not let sin reign. One of the most important thoughts that you could get into your mind and into your heart is that this, God is not a challenger to the, to the reign of sin in your life. Sin is a challenger to God's reign in your life. Some of you live as if sin is more powerful than God. You live as though sin reigns. Sin doesn't reign. God reigns. So stop letting sin reign. When you came to Christ, you made a decided commitment that self and sin no longer reign. Christ and his kingdom, they rule, they reign. And from that point forward, fighting temptation means sin is going to try, but I, I, I will not let it reign over me. Some of you are giving sin and the devil and your flesh way, way, way too much authority. Third, there is a location for this battle. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So think of it like there's a castle, there's a city, there's a, a, a quadrant, and that quadrant is your body. Don't let sin reign in your body. Next, verse 12, there are secret agents, and they are desires. These desires desire to foment rebellion. Verse 12, do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey their passions. So the means... Notice this, the means by which the enemy tries to usurp the authority of God, the means by which sin tries to reign, is through the secret agents of passions. These desires, these things that we want, and then they they are the entry points for sin to gain control. There's a possibility of surrender, incremental surrender, when a a portion of the battle is lost in verse 12 where it says to make you obey their passions. So sin wants to reign. It wants to reign in your body. The entry point is passions, and the end game is for your body to obey passions and the reign of sin. That's the end game. Sound familiar? This is how we all sin. We have a desire. We give in to it takes control of a portion of our body, affects the whole, and suddenly we act as if sin is reigning when it shouldn't reign. That's, that's what we face every single day. There are weapons, instruments, that could be used for the insurrection. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That word instrument means weapons. So there's things that could be used as weapons for righteousness, but instead, if taken under the wrong desire, given over to obedience in the rule and reign of sin, the very things that should have been used for God's glory can in fact be used to assault God and His glory. Verse 13, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So the idea is there is one true king and 
There are weapons that are to be engaged in his service. And finally, verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. In other words, there's a new authority in the land. There's a new flag that's flying, a new constitutional authority. There's some new dominion that reigns over all of the earth. You're in grace land. That's where you are. You are in the realm and the reality of grace. So the idea is stop letting sin take control by allowing your passions to infiltrate your body and give yourself over to the very things that assault God's glory when your body and your mind and your heart were meant to proclaim his glory. That's, that's what the text is saying. And this is, this is where we all live, isn't it? This describes every time I've ever given in to sin. It's just like this. So what are we supposed to do? Well, there's two things. We're supposed to say no to some things and we're supposed to say yes to some things. So what are we supposed to say no to? He says, do not let sin reign. Paul says that there is a potential, and that's a very important word, a potential for sin to reign in our mortal bodies. I say potential because sin is not supposed to reign in the body of a believer. Sin is a challenger to the reign and rule of God. Sin wants the power that Christ has achieved in those who belong to him. When you become a follower of Jesus, and if you're not a Christian, this is what happens. When you become a Christian, something happens to you miraculously that now your life used to be controlled by you and by sin and by the devil. Suddenly now you, you decide, God helping you, that you are going to receive Christ. And the effect of that is you are now a child of God. You're brought in the kingdom of God. And the declaration over you is there is a new ruler in this house. And it's Christ. This body belongs to Christ. This body that the devil would love to use belongs to Jesus. There's a reign and a rule connected to who and what Jesus is. Sin doesn't own the town anymore. Sin is an insurrection trying to overthrow overthrow the rule and reign of God. And every day, what's happening in our lives, a battle is being played out for those who are followers of Jesus, a battle between the forces of good and evil. And what the devil is attempting to do is to replay the Garden of Eden, but he wants to play it out not in the garden, but in your body. He wants to replay rebellion. He wants to demonstrate to the world that God really isn't as glorious as he is because watch what happens when I use passions and desires and I control the body and the mind. See what people who claim to be Jesus actually do and look like. Watch this. He replays the Garden of Eden. I don't know about you. That changes how I see that battle. So Paul says, don't let it win in your body. Don't let it win to make you obey their passions. Here's where the front line is. He's telling us, watch out for your desires. Watch out for what you want. The enemy is so good, so good at using God-given desires, good desires, and turning them so they become secret tunnels for the forces of evil to enter into our lives. So he uses good desires like food and drink, rest, approval, sex, Success and countless other really good desires, which in and of themselves are not bad. They're, they're wonderful, good desires, but they can become bad when they become distorted and self-centered and anti-God and these traitor-like desires. They, they then control parts of the body. And when you give in to wrong desires and you act upon it, you have now given shelter to insurrection. That's what happens. 
So one of the most important things you can ask yourself or you can ask people around you, or man, this is a really important ask junior hires and high school students when they're in your home. What do you want? I don't mean like, what do you want? Like, stop it. I mean, like, seriously, what do you want right now? What? Talk to me. Get to the desire level. You can't just talk about actions. You've got to get to desire. What is it that you want? And help them to verbalize what they want. If you're in the middle of a temptation, ask yourself, what do I want right now? What's alluring about that image that I want to click on? What do I want? What's it about money? What, is I, what do I want? What do, why do I want to say this thing? What is it that I want? Because the tongue or the eyes or the brain, the hands, your full body, your sexual organs, in and of themselves, they're not evil, but instead we use them to get what we want. And so we have to fight the battle at the want level. Paul goes very specific. Do not present your members. He gets, he gets very specific here. He's not just talking about in general. He's he's talking about we're not to use the the synapses in our brain. We're not to use our mouths, our eyes, our hands, our sexuality, any any part of our body for sin's insurrection. So Paul has been very specific. You also personally and your members. So the battle is not to allow passions to reign in us such that they begin to control individual body parts and what we do with them such that then it controls the whole person. And when that drama is played out, we give evidence that sin can in fact reign when it shouldn't. And the call here for you who are followers of Jesus is to realize, do not let that drama replay out in your life. Don't let that drama play out in the individual members of your body. See those desires for what they are. Attack them. Confess them. Confront them for what they are. And do not let sin reign. Or maybe better, stop letting sin reign. We're to say no. We're also to say yes. He says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So the idea is that I'm, I'm presenting myself to God. I, I'm convinced in terms of who I am. I'm convinced of my identity and I present myself. I set myself at God's disposal. We are to offer ourselves in a total and general sense, but we're also to offer ourselves individually and in our members. That's why it says, as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here's what I hope happens tomorrow morning. I hope that a bunch of you, when your feet hit the floor, And your first thought is Monday. That the second thought would be, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. I'm here to glorify you with my body. This day belongs to you. God is holy. I am not. Jesus saves Christ. You are my life. And then go get your coffee. Get in your car. And go to school. And go to work. And walk through the concourse of the airport. And fight, 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 fight for righteousness. Because at the end of the day, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. And I'm not going to let my brain or my eyes or my hands or any part of my body be used for the unfolding drama of the assault on God. Because at the end of the day, I belong to you, Jesus. You are, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. My hope is that the second thought of the morning will be, God, I belong to you. Every time you connect your identity to Christ... And you connect the members of your body to righteousness. You are making a glorious and powerful statement about the supremacy of God, the power of the gospel, and victory in Jesus. You walk down the concourse, 
You walk down your hallway, you walk in the corridors of your work, and you walk down with purity and righteousness. Someone says something nasty to you, you hold your tongue and respond in grace. When you do that, you are in effect saying to the world, God reigns. Watch. He reigns. It also means finally, verse 14, that you live in a new dominion. Sin will have no dominion over you because you are not under law, but under grace. So it means that whatever you do throughout the course of the week, you're doing it all to the glory of God. Why? Because you live in a new realm, grace dominion. So let me ask you back to think, think about that thing I mentioned at the very first of my message, and that is, what about that one sin issue? That one sin issue that needs to be targeted today? I hope that you can see it a little bit differently. Do you see how participating in that one sin, using the individual members of your body to, to go into that thing, is in effect participating in a devil-inspired insurrection? Do you see it a little differently? I want to just take a little bit, if I can, just a little bit of the luster and the attractiveness of sin off of it because the enemy loves to package it in such attractive, appealing packaging. But the reality is it's a devil-induced insurrection moment. What truths about Christ do you need to rehearse in your mind today? What indicatives do you need to meditate on? What what do you need to memorize? What big, what book do you need to read about the glory of Christ? There's resources that we have in our, our resource area. Just need to buy a book today and instead of watching the news at night, let the book hit you in the face as you fall asleep contemplating great truths about who and what God is. Let your last thought be great and big truths about indicatives and what it means to be. Some of you, what specific action steps do you need to take so that certain parts of your body are no longer able to be used by the enemy? See, listen, Romans 6. Romans 6 does not call us to sinless perfectionism. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. We're going to struggle. There's moments that we're going to fail. But what it does do, church, is it calls us to fight and to fight aggressively, to see this fight for what it is, to see that God reigns, sin doesn't. These passions and these desires, they, they don't picture life accurately. My passions are my passions. The problem with our thinking, we don't think about our thinking. The problem with our feelings is we listen to them way, way, way too much. These passions are Judas passions. They betray us. And instead we're called to present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness so that while sin still dwells within, it's no longer in charge. It means that sin may be present, but it is no longer in power. And my question for you is, so how does that work in about three minutes when you walk out of here? And how does that work tomorrow morning? And how does that work for seven days? And then you come back and we'll sing, we'll be recharged, we'll worship, and we'll do that again and again and again and again until Jesus calls us home because sin is not in charge anymore.
Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, help us now to respond in accordance with your word. There are some today in this room who will listen to this message who they have come to the realization that what I've just described is what they want, but they can't have it unless they come to Christ. And I pray that today would be a day when they turn and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm done with me, and I believe in you. Come and be my king. And I pray that will happen. And for believers who have made that decision, but who still participate in the drama of the fall in small little ways, forgive us, cleanse us, and help us, Lord, to know who we are and to know what we do. There are some within this room who you're calling today to take a decisive action, one that will be costly and painful, and I pray that you'd give them the strength to do it and to do it quickly. And with that in mind, church, as we're now to the end of our worship time together, I'm going to give you just a few moments of silent meditation just to think, what is it that God is saying to you today? What's he calling you to do? You're here by divine design. Why? And will you just take a moment to consider that and just talk to the Lord? When you hear the music play, you can be dismissed. There's also some folks up here who'd love to pray for you. That's why they're here. If you need to know Christ, they're here today to lead you to him. If you need to have someone pray over you, that's why they're here. So come. But for a moment, let's just pause and say, God, what are you saying?